This is the Glasses by Day Geek by Night podcast, episode 2. Hi, I'm Matt and I'm going to review and moan about some geeky stuff. Today's show includes some geeky news, things to watch this week, movies to watch ASAP, comics you should read before you die, and character of the week. This week's geeky news. The cameos in The Flash seem to have mixed reaction on the internet. As someone who's just watched The Flash, I can understand this. Christopher Reeve, Reeves and Helen Slater, they did look weird. But I can almost let it off because obviously Christopher Reeve isn't with us anymore. And Helen Slater doesn't exactly look exactly the same as she did back in the day. Nicolas Cage finally got his dream to be Superman. And it does come to something when he actually looked better than Christopher Reeves and Helen Slater. I actually thought he looked pretty cool. The Flash was actually better than I expected. Although... I think we can all agree, if you have watched it, the CGI was awful. You only have to watch a few minutes to see the babies falling out of the window, and it it was creepy as hell. The babies looked weird. I get that everything was slow motion and all that stuff, but to me, it was bloody awful. The, The CGI was weird. All the rewinding time stuff, I think it was a good idea and concept, but everyone started to look weird. There was a moment when we see Henry Cavill's Superman while he's around in time. You know that moment where he comes back to life in the Justice League and he fights the Flash. And I don't know how they did it, but Henry Cavill actually looks worse there than he did during the Whedon reshoots. And it just it just didn't work. It's almost like AI was used on everyone to create the images and they just kind of... They robbed certain images. What was it? Teddy Sears from um, the Flash TV show. His likeness was used as Jay Garrick. And actually, realistically, he might have been Jay Garrick for a little bit of time in the Flash TV show. But actually, it turned out that he wasn't who he said he was. So I kind of feel like it's almost like they've just put in, you know, Jay Garrick AI into the AI program and it's come out with that. The problem I've got with the film is that Marvel and Fox version of Super Speed and Quicksilver from what Days of Future Past, which came out in 2014, was a better representation of Super Speed than we got in DC's The Flash. I kind of feel like they had what nine years just to you know like look back over everything that had been done Super Speed. You even only have to look at certain things that have been done in the Flash TV show, and actually, you know, I kind of feel like. They they just got a bit lazy with the whole thing. Keaton, on the other hand, Michael Keaton, brilliant. He, you know, he is my Batman. He was great. Suit was great. Acting was great. Persona was great. Loved him in it. Shame we can't have Batman. More Batman 89 in our lives. Ben Affleck, it, I've got nothing against him as Batman, but the suit in this was, uh, it was awful. The cowl especially was awful. It was almost like the cowl didn't fit in properly. Like he borrowed his big brother's you know, suit or something like that. I don't get how we've gone from the Snyder versus cool suit to the piece of trash that they showed us in the Flash movie. Sasha Calais Supergirl was decent. Suit was great. Acting was good as well. She was solid in it. She was a tortured car Zorel. It's a shame you won't get to see her and Cavill team up. Although the studio could use her with the new guy, as Gunn can do literally whatever he wants, whenever he wants, basically. Um, he does seem to be cleaning house with everything that's got potential, though, so probably last last time we'll see her as Supergirl. For me, the film needed 
a Flash villain. The Flash has the best rogues gallery out of pretty much any hero in any universe. And they did a whole Flash film without a single Flash villain. That to me, it's ridiculous. You, You can't have a Flash movie without a Flash villain. You've got, what, you know, how many speedsters have he come up against? He's got the Pied Piper, Captain Boomerang, Mirror Mask there. They're just to name a few. And actually, they've got so many stories that they could use. And yet, they just kind of, what, backtracked on themselves. And what, you know what? We'll do a time travel film where we'll just go back in time. And although we've, you know, like, got rid of the Snyderverse completely... We'll just actually use everything from Man of Steel, basically, and put that in. And I kind of feel like it's it's ridiculous when you think James Gunn has actually like he's he's got rid of everything that Zack Snyder created. But then in the Flash film, they've used the Zod stuff, the invasion, yeah, you know, like the the Kryptonians coming to Earth, and yet they've just got rid of it all, basically. I kind of feel like it's just a bit lazy when you think that the Flash has got so many good villains. The the other thing that really bugged me about it was, as a Flash fan myself, that basically anyone who's a Flash fan knows that Nora Allen was killed by the reverse Flash, Earbot Fawn. And I know that, you know, that's canon now. That That's that's the way that it is. But basically, it, it doesn't show anything about her murder who murdered her do you know what I mean just that she died and I kind of feel like that's not that's not the end of the world but I kind of feel like if you're doing a film that involves him basically going back to you know change things and creating a flashpoint paradox kind of thing I kind of feel like surely there should be you know Eobard phone should be there to basically say haha I killed your mum and all this and why you can't change it back and all you know, I kind of feel like instead they just kind of they went, Oh I know. Save us getting another actor in. We'll just pay you know, pay the same actor to play, you know, this the same role but at different points in his life. Don't get me wrong, Ezra Miller is actually pretty good in the film. The issue I've got is though that the there's so much wrong with the film. Basically the CGI throws you off completely there are moments where basically barry meets his younger self basically and he's like he's only like 18 but he basically they he carries him at one point in the film and you just have to look at the 18 year old barry being carried and it's almost like the life is being sucked out of him by a dementor do you remember in the harry potter films where the dementor sucked out and it's almost like they go gaunt kind of thing i kind of feel like we we've done a lot of CGI where there's two people in the past and stuff like that that has been better. I remember things from like the nineties that looked better than that. I just kind of feel like it it's sloppy CGI and it made the film garbage to me. I did don't get me wrong, it wasn't awful. I'm saying garbage. It aspects of it were garbage. I kind of feel like if you don't think of it as a flash film, it was actually an okay film. If you think of it as a Flash film, it was let down by the fact that there was no no Flash villains in it whatsoever, basically. Other than Barry's 18-year-old self becoming the Black Flash, when I kind of feel like 
the reverse flash would have been a better storyline for it. But you know, that's just me. A little bit lazy with the Zack Snyder stuff, basically just bringing back Zod from Man of Steel. You know, what can we do? I did like the twist at the end. It made me laugh a little bit where um, Judge Clooney turned up instead of Ben Affleck. You know, as Bruce Wayne, I thought that was pretty pretty funny. What can we say? Next up, we've got Star Wars. So I'm going to go into the Ahsoka trailer, which I think looked awesome. I think Rosario Dawson has taken the character and made it better. If anyone who doesn't know Ahsoka, basically, Ahsoka Tano was basically, when she first appeared, she was a whiny child when she first appeared in the Clone Wars series. Although by the end, she was a badass in her own right. But she's been pushed to new heights and you know, with Rosario Dawson taking over. So basically, she was a force-sensitive female brought into the Jedi Order by Jedi Master Plo Koon. Plo was unable to train her um, due to already having a Padawan. So the council assigned her to Jedi Anakin Skywalker. So we all know Anakin becomes Darth Vader at some point. She becomes the commander of the 501st clone troops and a hero in her own right. So she goes through a lot basically during the Clone Wars and she's eventually framed for the bombing of the Jedi hangar um, and other murders basically. Um, she escapes, tries to clear her name but is eventually caught. She's basically kicked out of the Jedi. Then Anakin clears her name and she's basically... You know, she's offered to, you know, they ask her to come back, but the High Council ask her to come back. And she basically says, no, I'm not doing that. You know, get lost, basically. She returns just before Order 66 and is responsible for capturing capturing Maul, who is one of the main antagonists of the Clone Wars. When when Order 66 hits, she fights for her life and succeeds, even bringing her friend, uh, friend and clone, Rex, back from his programmer, basically, to kill her. She fakes her death and goes into hiding. She becomes a rebel and eventually fights her old master, who is now Darth Vader, to the death, subsequently getting crushed under the rubble of the Sith Temple. Ezra Bridger, if you've watched Rebels, basically goes into, you know, a world between worlds and basically pulls her from non-existence, basically. And that's why she's around now. So she's been seen in episodes of The Mandalorian where she's been awesome. You know, lightsabers, force users, and light and light side and dark side battles, basically in general. What more can we say? It's looking to be a good series. We've also got the Acolyte. I'm, I'm kind of, I think I'm looking forward to this one more. I kind of feel like what I want from Star Wars at the moment is a story that I haven't seen before. I kind of feel like, you know, the fact that it's set what a hundred years before the prequels. You know, it promises to have more Jedi in. You know, than any other Star Wars movie. You know, I kind of feel like it's it's what I want to see basically more than you know just the, the the same old trope basically that we get from time to time. I kind of feel like the fact that I was a big fan of the prequels and I love the the visuals from Coruscant and you know the Jedi Temple and lightsaber battles. I'm hoping that we get much more of that. What I love about the show is, though, that it's the Jedi at their peak, basically. So, so they're at the peak of their power. The the Order is going strong. They're policing the galaxy. You know, it's it's doing what they want. There are going to be Sith in it, obviously. You know, no war, but there will be battles. I'm hoping. So, you know, it's promising to be you know a decent show. As far as I can tell. I'm hoping it doesn't get too political. 
you know, obviously we need a bit of you know a bit of a political side in it, but if that's what it's coming across as, maybe I will dislike it a little bit more. Who knows? Next up, we've got Kamala Khan. So Kamala Khan is Miss Marvel, and she is now a mutant. So long thought to be an Inhuman, we now say that she is a mutant and an Inhuman. I don't know how that's possible. Allegedly, is possible for someone in a Marvel book universe. Yeah, they can do basically what they want. Basically, so you can't be a mutant, you can't be an Inhuman, you can't be the same. So. I'm kind of excited to see where it goes. I, I, I'm a fan of Miss Marvel's character. I, I've read her in the Champions and stuff like that. You know, decent leader. She's got ties to the X Men already because during the you know new X Men sto- story, basically back in the day, uh, Cyclops, young Cyclops, comes from the past to the future. And ends up joining Kamala in the champions, basically. All right, so he's gone back to his own time now, and obviously Cyclops from our from their era remembers us, so they're friends. So basically, Kamala recently died in Amazing Spider-Man issue sixty, into issue twenty-six. Even she she had a hero's death. She saved MJ, but like any hero who dies in the comics, they also have a hero's rebirth. Kamala was brought back on Krakoa, which is the homeland of the mutants at the moment. So basically, they've got this this weird technology that involves five mutants. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but basically, they can be reborn out of golden balls. So basically, it all requires Professor X to have downloaded her consciousness beforehand each and every day to then, if you die, you can get brought back. So it's a, it, it's a good concept, basically. But how she became a mutant, other than the creators wanting her to become a mutant in the first place, remains to be seen. So the creators of her, basically, they wanted Kamala Khan to be a mutant in the first place. But during that that period where she was created, the X-Men were basically being pushed aside because Fox owned the rights to the movie, the movie rights to the X-Men. So basically, any new hero any new hero that was being created in marvel was not going to be a mutant because then they got rights to that mutant basically so they could use them in any film so the idea is they tried to push the inhumans to the forefront get rid of the mutants as much as possible they even went as far as to decimate half the mutant you know more than half the mutant population leaving only 300 mutants in the whole mcu basically so the idea is there was no new mutants there are you know they're on their last legs, basically. Since getting back, you know, the rights to it, mutants are like thriving again. They're back in the driving seat. You know, I'm not saying humans aren't there. They are, but I think what they're trying to say now is even the TV show has made Kamala into a mutant, basically. So, you know, I wait to see on how she became a mutant. All I know is Kamala's turned into one of probably the best best and biggest characters in the Marvel Universe at the moment, so I wait to see what they do with her that is going to big her up even more, basically, alright? So, next up, the Marvels offers up a new trailer. I've mentioned the Marvels previously, and I've said previously that I'm not buying it, I'm, I'm not a fan of where it's going, but after the trailer, I'm buying it a little bit more than previous trailers, basically. 
It's apparently being described as a mini Avengers movie because of the important MCU characters that will appear in it. So I'm assuming they've got quite a few coming in. I would love to see it do well. In spite of how I feel towards Brie Larson, it has nothing to, you know, it has all the things it needs to be a decent film. Look, one thing you can say about Brie Larson's uh, Captain Marvel is that actually her powers are somewhere in the vicinity of, you know, what, you know, Captain Marvel's powers are supposed to be. They made it out. I think the MCU has tried their best to link everything to the Infinity Stones, especially in the the, the first phase, basically, all right, first and second phase. But the idea is, when you get down to characters like Kamala Khan, her powers, she was an inhuman. Now she's a mutant. We've just talked about that, basically. The idea is, her power, you know, even in the TV show, didn't come. You know, they they've made it so that her power came from what what I can only assume is a link to the Infinity Stones or something cosmic in the in the way and she is a mutant but the idea is I feel like the the Miss Marvel character basically they've diverged from her original powers a little bit too much for me. Samuel L. Jackson's looking to be you know pretty decent in it. He always is. Um it has promised to be a sequel to Secret Invasion. So I talked about Secret Invasion last week and I'm enjoying it. I kind of feel like I don't get what everyone's problem is. I kind of feel like, you know, it's, you know, it is what it says it is. It's it's supposed to be, you know, I, it's almost a spy movie in a way because obviously, they, you know, they can shapeshift. You know, scrolls can shapeshift. They can do things. You know, it's, it's shaping up to be a decent series. I, I don't see what everyone's problem is with it, but I feel like, you know, Watch it again, get on board, because I think it's been pretty good. Next up, we have the 10-year anniversary of Superior Spider-Man run. 10 years ago, Doc Ock implanted his mind into Peter's body and took over his life. He went out proving that he was the better than the original, that he was the Superior Spider-Man. And what I love about the story is that Doc Ock was already one of Peter's worst villains anyway. You know, did he need to go this far? He somehow took it to a new level. He stole his life. And actually, he did a better job than him in a lot of respects. Although he did kill and brutally beat down a lot of people. You know, I kind of feel like, you know, if you you want a villain, he probably is one of his worst villains. I think probably everyone would class, you know, Green Goblin as Spidey's worst villain. But actually, when you think, Doc Ock stole his life. Do you know what I mean? He, he you know, yeah, he might not have killed his missus. I get that. All right, he's second to Green Goblin then. All right, fair enough, second. But I kind of feel like he, he did a lot of harm to his life, basically. Creator Dan Slott promises that the anniversary issue will bring untold tales of superior Spider-Man kicking and skewing into the present and will affect Spidey's life without time travel clones or any other sorcery. So I'm really looking forward to this. I kind of feel like the original story was great. So this can only lead to more good stuff for Spidey in the future. Right, the Invincible Season 2 trailer dropped the Comic-Con. And I, I keep mentioning Invincible, but it is... You know, the show was decent, but the book's even better. So what I love about you know the series is that you know I know what's coming. I, 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 I can honestly say that 
Invincible is probably one of my favorite comic books of all time. So basically, the idea is, I I can tell you unequivocally that there's some good stuff coming to that series, and I kind of feel like to a certain extent they they made certain fight scenes even better on the TV show, and I didn't think that was possible because the fight scenes actually in the you know in the comic book were really good. So I'd give it a watch. The the trailer it, it doesn't give us too much basically it gives us a little but it basically it's just showing that you know mark survived he's gonna keep fighting what you know i kind of feel like it's definitely worth a watch all right yeah so basically the what we did get from the trailer is it promises the same animation style which works it teases a whole host of new voice talent including peter cullen so peter cullen optimus prime he will forever be Optimus, but I think his voice works as the character he's going to become. I'm not going to say too much more, but season two comes on to Prime in November, so give it a watch. What to watch this week? So I've got two things to watch this week. So basically, the first one is a rewatch. It's I'm rewatching Daredevil from Netflix, basically, that's now all on Disney. So basically... I've been inspired a little bit by just reading a little bit up on, you know, what's going to happen in their new series, basically, all right? They don't give much away, but I kind of feel like with watching No Way Home and he shows up in that and the Kingpin shows up in Hawkeye, I kind of feel like they, they've, they've got the right idea of where to go, hopefully. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm mildly, you know, on board with where they're going. So... If you've watched any of the Netflix shows, I'm sure you'd agree that Daredevil is probably the best show of the Netflix series. Charlie Cox's interpretation of the blind lawyer slash vigilante superior was awesome. I, I actually believe that he actually did some research on how to be blind, so that was always a good thing. Eldon Henson plays a great role as Foggy Nelson, so it, Eldon Henson to me will always be Fulton from the Mighty Ducks, but... I think he's a pretty decent Foggy, basically. So, Foggy Nelson, he's Matt, Matt Murdock's best friend and partner in their law firm. Um, the two complement each other in the best way. Um, we have the Kingpin, Punisher, Bullseye, The Hand, Electra, as well as a team, a team-up show in the Defender series, which is basically an unofficial season of Daredevil, seeing how he was the only established hero at the time. What I love about the series is that Matt can dish out a beating, but he can take more than his fair share of cuts and bruises. But what I love about him is that they don't make it too unrealistic, basically. So he hasn't got some inhuman resistance to pain like Dominic Toretto has in every Fast and Furious film. Like the man falls from buildings and just gets up. A building fell on him, I'm sure, at one point, and he just walked away. So Daredevil at least dies, you know, almost dies a few times, okay, yeah. And the fight sequences, they're, they're really good or inspiring even. So, you know, you know, the fight choreography, big hallway fights, it's one thing that's the, you know, Daredevil's known for basically. So, you know, it shows some great feats of strength and determination. Don't get me wrong, I actually liked Ben Affleck's version of the character, even going so far as to say that I liked, you know, I liked the film back in the day. But I do think Charlie Cox brings something more vulnerable and likable to the character. And I, I think that comes from the fact that it's actually a TV series rather than a film. Vincent D'Onofrio's portrayal of Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. the kingpin of crime, is brilliant and shows 
as he was one of the few characters that Disney's actually retrieved from, you know, extinction with the Netflix universe. To be fair, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and actually after season two of Iron Fist, which was much improved on the first season, they all deserved a shot of coming back from cancellation. One way or another, I'm looking forward to seeing what Disney can do with the character and seeing what new things they can bring to the show. Another thing to watch this week is Invincible Atom Eve. I know I go on about um, Invincible a lot at the moment, all right, and I'm probably even, I'm definitely going to go on even more in a minute. Um, but for now, I'm going to talk about Invincible Atom Eve. For fans of the show or book like me, they know that Atom Eve is a huge part of both. She's a big part of Mark's life, basically. So I almost felt like they were underutilizing her to a certain extent in the first season, leading her to get her own 50 odd minute of origin story in this episode basically which is pretty cool for the character Eve's powers let her manipulate matter on a subatomic level letting her create pretty much anything she can imagine so she can make a healthy sandwich into an amazing cheeseburger basically so you know she can make cloves out of you know anything she can fly by manipulating the molecules molecules in the air basically so She's got a great power. So if you've been craving more Invincible, I suggest that you watch the episode as soon as... Although, we do have a bit of a wait for a season two of Invincible. So, it's up to you, basically. Films to watch ASAP. The Flash has hopefully shown a new generation how good Michael Keaton's Batman was, as well as reigniting old-school fans such as myself for the Tim Burton's Batman films. The reason I talked so much about The Flash earlier was was because the film, well, films that I'm going to talk about today is Batman and Batman Returns. Michael Keaton was the Batman that I grew up with, other than the late, great Kevin Conroy. Batman came out in 1989 and wowed audience across the world, basically, because it was the first time that Batman had been seen like this. Although, I I do quite like Adam West's version back in, 19, yeah, in the 1960s. I kind of feel like it... It used to come on the telly when I was a kid, and you know, it was yeah, I enjoyed it. You know what I mean? But you know, it it wasn't until this moment that audience seen what you know bat, how badass Batman could be. Basically, what I love about the first movie was that they got rid of the spandex and the powers that came with every everyone he punched, and showed a greater side to the character with the which the comics had been doing, you know, around then. So basically. It was much improved on the 1960s version. Tim Burton's dark style complements the film completely, leading it to being a classic. The synopsis is basically the Dark Knight begins his war on crime with his first major enemy being Jack Napier, who becomes the Joker. The usual origin story that you'd expect, parents killed in an alleyway, thereby creating the Batman. Although, what I like about the film is it doesn't, necessarily show you all that happening as such you know what I mean it just it, it hints at it it talks about it that's about it we don't need to know I kind of feel like at the end of the day we know it all happens so there you go the darkness scene in these films is immense and gladly they both still hold up today Jack Nicholson plays the Joker in the first film and he's brilliant he brings a psychotic ten- he brings psychotic tendencies to a new level basically Everything about the film is fantastic, even down to the model city used throughout the film. Batman Returns is a continuation of the first film and brings new villains and problems for Bruce Wayne and Batman. It's a better film. It's all—it's like The Empire Strikes Back, basically. It's just a better film. 
Batman's on better terms with the commissioner. That he's he's made it as Gotham's unappointed hero. So the synopsis basically is in Batman Returns. Batman deals with a deformed man calling himself the Penguin, who's wreaking havoc across Gotham. He is helped by Max Shrek, a cruel businessman who wants power. So the Penguin is played by Danny Vito, Danny DeVito, who's brilliant but disgusting in it. His version's almost a mutant with webbed feet and hands like fins, as well as sharp teeth. His version is definitely not for children. Michelle Pfeiffer's version of Selena Kyle, aka Catwoman, isn't is brilliant. There is a scene where she whips off the heads of mannequins in a shop, which looks great on camera, but it's even better because we know she actually did it because of the behind-the-scenes footage. The leather suit is something that we haven't seen before. Her origin story almost gives her a supernatural spin, which is a little different than her comic one. What you've got to like about Tim Burton's style is, though, that he wasn't afraid to change the source material slightly. And I know that I've said that I'm always a fan of the source material, but I kind of feel like I was at the age then. I was very little when Batman came out. And little, you know, not as little, but still little when Batman Returns came out. But actually, the... The films back then didn't bother me because I didn't always have a clear view of where the character had come from. I mean, these days I've got maybe too much knowledge sometimes of the characters. So that affects how I feel about when they mess with them. So I think back in the day I could live with it because I didn't know as much. I didn't have as much knowledge on what was going on. Christopher Walken's Max Shrek is brilliant, but... Now I've watched it back, he does just play Christopher Walken in it. And I think that he's one of those characters I've talked about previously where they play themselves in everything, which worked probably back in 1989 because I didn't know him. So that probably worked for it. Um, Michael Goff's um, Alfred is amazing in both films, giving us a warm feel of the man who raised Bruce Wayne. Films are great. I'd say get them watched. Comics to read before you die. So today I'm going to get away from Marvel and DC this week. Zero in on a modern day classic. I've talked about him quite a lot recently, so let's get it out of my system. Invincible. For those who haven't heard of Invincible, where have you been? I've definitely been talking about him for two episodes of a podcast. So let's get him out of my system and get on with our lives. For those of you who haven't heard of Invincible, he was created by Ryan Kirkman, who created The Walking Dead. If you've watched or read any of The Walking Dead, you, you can tell that Kirkman isn't afraid to get gory, which he brings it massively into the Invincible comics. There's some fight scenes in Invincible that are like, oh my god, how have they just got away with that? There's a point where his hands are all messed up in the future, and he beats down a person with his head. Yeah, it it's just like, oh my god. So, for anyone who doesn't know, the story focuses on Mark Grayson, a 17-year-old high school student and son of the world's best superhero, Omni-Man. So Mark finally gets his superpowers after waiting patiently for years. So Mark is strong, he's fast, he can fly. The story to me is a coming-of-age story, so it focuses on the trials of newfound power and responsibility that comes with that power. So it, you know, it doesn't majorly focus on it like Spider-Man would, where it's great power comes great responsibility. But you can tell that you know, as he, you know, he thinks it's going to be all peachy to begin with, but eventually realizes that this power can actually hurt someone, so he has to rein it in. 
The story shows that having power and using power correctly are two different things. So Mark makes plenty of stakes, mistakes along the way, but eventually becomes the world's greatest hero. Definitely its strongest hero at one point. This is what the one and only spoiler that I'll give you as the prime cartoon of the same name has already showed this particular story. So Mark's father's story is reminiscent of a mixture of it in my eyes between the Superman's origin story and Goku from Dragon Ball. So Nolan is a Viltramite, so that's an alien species, and is sent to Earth, unbeknownst to everyone else, to take over and not to save them. So he secures himself a place within the world's greatest heroes as a backup member, basically. So he starts a family and gets comfortable. This all comes to a head when Nolan decides, after Mark gets his powers, that it's time for them to take over. So he takes out the world's greatest heroes, which Ryan Kirkman has wrote as a play on DC's Justice League. So they have someone who's like Wonder Woman, someone like Aquaman. They've got a Superman character already. They have a Green Lantern. They have a Martian. They have a Flash, basically. And he takes them all out, except for the Superman character who is immortal. But he basically incapacitates him enough. So, you know, basically after this, he then asks Mark to join him. So Mark refuses and the two clash leading to Mark being severely injured and Nolan leaving Earth. This isn't the last time we see Nolan and it isn't the end of Mark's story. So he deals the, he deals with domestic threats, aliens and other dimensional armadas that want revenge. Lots, lots more. He makes plenty of friends throughout the 144-issue run. So, 144 issues, you know, it probably it could have gone on longer. But I think Kirkman got to the point where he thought, right, I've got to end this. I feel like when you've got something like The Walking Dead, where he was finding it hard to come to a conclusion, he had to find something here that he could bring to its natural conclusion. And it was a great ending, basically. So, the story chronicles Mark starting out as an inexperienced hero to becoming the greatest and strongest hero on the planet. It shows him moving away, becoming a leader of his people. It's it's, it's a beautiful story, basically. What I love about Invincible is that at first glance it looks like a conventional superhero book, but it is much, much more than that. I think it brings a grittier side to thing how things would work if you were a superhero don't get me wrong it's not the boys by any stretch it's much lighter than the boys but still grittier than your average superhero book it also excites me for the prime show as i i know what's coming who's coming great villains great wars family friends it's just a great book you know he has an initial love interest that eventually it goes further than that at Eve. He's got a bunch of super-powered friends. Invincible's a great book and more than worthy of your time. So finally, we have Character of the Week. The character that I've chosen to talk about this week, as he was completely ignored in the Flash movie, is the reverse Flash, Earbard Thorne. So, Earbard was created in 1963 and has been Barry's arch-nemesis ever since. This makes it even worse that he wasn't used in the film, as characters such as Miles Morales... Blue Beetle and all them, especially Miles, who was only created in 2011. They're already getting feature films about them. What does Thorne have to do to get a bit of respect around here? So, Eobard hails from the 25th century, where he was a scientist who idolised the Flash. This was his initial story, anyway. He replicated the accident that gave Barry his powers, and therefore 
gained super speed. This subsequently drove him mad as a hatter and sent him down a dark road. Eobard learned somewhere along the way that he was destined to be the Flash's greatest enemy and sets out to ruin the Flash's life. Basically, he's fueled by jealousy and hatred, basically, which makes him even worse as a speedster. Form was literally—he's literally tried to ruin Barry's life and on a number of occasions. He, he killed the love of his life, Iris West. That's probably the worst thing he's done. Then, tried later on, tried to kill his newest fiance on their wedding day. So Barry killed him. Not very heroic. We get that. There were repercussions for Barry, but we'll, we'll go on to that at a different time. There was one storyline that linked the pair biologically. So Barry had a long-lost twin brother who was Eobard Thorne's ancestor. This is how, how messed up the, you know, the universe can be because eventually they, they, DC, like they always do, they reimagine the universe every so often and mix things up. So the latest incarnation of Eobard Thorne have, has him as the killer of Nora Allen, basically. So he was responsible for her death. This leads up to great stories such as Flashpoint. So if you haven't read Flashpoint, you know, you should get on it because that is a great book as well. That's probably one of the books that I will read as books to read before you die, but not today. Eobar Fawn is one of the greatest villains in the DC Universe and it was a shame that he was never used in the film. He would have brought something unique to the film, you know, it's not just that he hates the Flash, he hates Barry Allen for rejecting him and not making him feel special. This guy is, you know, the ultimate person that you just do not want to, you know, mess with in any way because if you disappoint him in any way, he will retaliate, basically. So he hates Barry so much, he's, you know, He's determined to destroy him in any way, shape or form. So he's fast, he's smart as hell, and he's a psychopath who can time travel. It's, you know, he can live in multiple places uh, through time at once. He's not to be messed with. Was that the reason he wasn't used? We'll never know, other than the fact that, you know, laziness on you know, the film's behalf. But what can we do? Either way, I felt that Thorne deserved a little spotlight as one of the best villains in the DC Universe. I'm Matt, and this has been the Glasses by Day Geek by Night podcast. Thanks for listening.